Yes, let us do our perennial favorite. The good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for self-incrimination after former West Virginia lawmaker Derek Evans was sentenced to three months in jail for storming the U.S. Capitol. A key piece of evidence was Evans's live stream video of himself on January 6th shouting, Derek Evans is in the Capitol! It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for both The Week magazine and this program with the news that The Week, in its June 24th issue, which we quoted, misidentified Donald Trump Jr.'s fiance. We and the magazine reported that it was Stephanie Grisham who got paid $60,000 from donated funds for introducing her boyfriend at that fateful rally. In fact, Don Jr.'s fiance is Kimberly Guilfoyle, the former Mrs. Gavin Newsom. It was she who got the 60K for introducing Don Jr. Now, we don't know at Radio Parallax whether Kimberly ever did get the chance to introduce Gavin before a speech, but if she did, we're pretty sure that he didn't, she didn't come away with a payday like that one. And it was an ugly week, a couple weeks back, for ugly Americans, with the news that a surveillance camera captured two U.S. tourists hurling an electric scooter down Rome's iconic Spanish steps, causing in the process an estimated $27,000 in damage to the steps. A city spokesman said the young couple was completely drunk, to which we would add, and completely stupid. Mr. Mill looks forward to them being completely incarcerated soon. And speaking of stupid, here's an item. We don't know how to classify this one. I think it's probably both bad and ugly. But apparently the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office approved the Ohio State University's bid to trademark the word the on sports apparel and merchandise. A university spokesman said the has been the rallying cry in the Ohio State community for many years. And no, Mr. Millen, I'm pretty sure that the word was the, not duh. Although of the two, duh certainly does seem more appropriate. By the way, we were quite shocked to see that USC and UCLA have decided to jump the Pac-12 and join the Big Ten. Yes, although traditionally the Rose Bowl has been a contest between the winner of the Pac-8 or the Pac-10 or the Pac-12 and the Big Ten or Big 8, whatever they used to be. I don't know. Apparently, that's no longer to be in force. I guess it opens the possibility that, you know, USC might play Stanford in the Rose Bowl or Cal if, if they ever manage to get there. There's a couple of miscellaneous items that are sort of in the, in the keeping with the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm not going to label them, but just note that we've been critical of the Supreme Court on this program. We admit it. But, you know, they are on occasion able to render decisions. In fact, they recently sided with a Georgia death row inmate who prefers to die by firing squad rather than lethal injection. Lawyers of a convicted murderer, Michael Nance, 61, argued that his veins are severely compromised and unsuitable for sustained intravenous access, so it might cause him severe pain and suffering to be injected. This, of course, now clears the path for him to petition the state of Georgia to shoot him. And in keeping with our, our stories about true love, which previously involved the, the five foot two portly 66-year-old Indian man who duped 27 younger women into marrying him. 
I mean, how can we say for sure these weren't cases of true love? Just as the fact that Jerry Hall has evidently been divorced from Rupert Murdoch via tweet, or at least notified of the fact that she's about to get divorced. A lot of people are cynical about that marriage, but again, how do we know that wasn't true love? I was certainly amused to note that one of the main objections Murdoch evidently had to Jerry Hall was the fact that she smoked incessantly. And you know, it isn't often we find ourselves in agreement with Rupert Murdoch. And as far as we know, no word from Mick Jagger about his ex-wife's nicotine fiend habits. And here's an item from late 2020, which I'm pretty sure did not make it onto the program, so it will do so now. Back in October of that year, a Belgian man got busted after a failed plot to hijack a helicopter and free his incarcerated wife. Mike Geelan, a 24-year-old convicted drug smuggler and two accomplices, hired the helicopter under the pretense of being a TV crew. Once airborne, they pulled fake guns and told the pilot to land at the prison. The plot went awry when Galen became airsick as the chopper circled the prison. <laughs> and yes, he apparently barfed out the window five times as the pilot was unable to land in the prison yard. Aww. What I like best is the comments by Galen's lawyer, who said, It seems the whole thing has been staged quite amateurishly. But in keeping with our true love theme at this juncture, you know, how many of you would be willing to hijack a helicopter to rescue your beloved from a prison where she was incarcerated. I ask you. Let's see if we can't plow through a bunch of science topics with, with some good news. Not all of it, but some. Something definitely not in the good news category is the Earth's CO2 levels, which have now reached their highest levels in at least 4 million years. Yes, at this point, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has shown that the average level of greenhouse gas is more than 50% higher than it was in pre-industrial times. And as predicted by atmospheric scientists over 20 years ago, probably more like 40 years ago, really, but at least 20 years ago, temperatures around the Earth have increased two-thirds of a degree Fahrenheit, which has fueled extreme weather, including longer and more severe droughts, wildfires, flooding, and tropical storms. And of course, as we've been saying like a broken record, as many environmentalists have been saying, to stave off a tipping point that could leave parts of the planet inhospitable to humans, CO2 levels need to start falling. Instead, despite international pledges to cut emissions, the levels continue to rise. Humans pumped a record 36 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere last year and are on track to break that record this year. Geochemist Ralph Keeling at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography said it's depressing that we've lacked the collective willpower to slow the relentless rise in CO2. This certainly puts that old joke uh, of everyone talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it on its head. It seems these days that pretty much everybody's talking about the weather, but nobody's doing anything about it. Well, correction. Some people are doing some things about it, and we need to talk about some of those. Surprisingly, one thing that we all may be able to do to cut down on CO2 is to pay better attention to fashion. Article by Graham Lawton in New Scientist notes that our love of cheap and cheerful clothes is hugely damaging to the environment. What does more sustainable fashion look like and what will it take to buck the trend was the subheadline of the piece. Now, the truth is, Mr. Miller and I are somewhat ignorant of this topic, not being fashion plates. Speak for yourself. But noted Graham Lawton, 
The fashion industry in the past 30 years has become one of the most successful and most destructive on the planet. This comes to us via fast fashion, which has filled our wardrobes with cheap and cheerful clothes. But after three decades of remorseless growth, the model is butting up against fundamental environmental limits, and there's widespread agreement, even from within the industry, that it's time to hit the brakes. Like fast food, fast fashion is all about instant gratification on the cheap. This term came into widespread use after a 1989 article in the New York Times reporting that a new Zara outfit could have a novel item of clothing in the store in just 15 days after it was a twinkle in the designer's eye. In those days, fashion houses typically created two new collections a year. Now, the fastest can rack up two a month. This business model feeds off impulse purchases of low-priced, low-quality clothes, driven by endless novelty. Over recent decades, this pattern of consumption has become the norm for most people in the West and is spreading around the world, said Patrizia Gazzoli at the University of Insubria in Varese, Italy. Everyone agrees that from a business perspective, this model has been hugely successful. The world currently buys 62 million tons of apparel every year, 100 billion items of clothing every year. The piece notes that the fashion industry has been slow to embrace sustainability. For the most part, the fashion industry still operates using a linear model of extracting, producing, and disposing of resources. Notes the piece, unsurprisingly, this juggernaut of production and consumption has a huge environmental footprint. Establishing just how big, however, is difficult. Fashion is routinely described as the world's second most polluting industry, although the source of this, quote, fact, unquote, is invariably a media report making the same unsubstantiated claim. When science-based sustainable fashion website EcoCult tried to establish what these, where that statistic originated, it discovered a tangle of different numbers. When they got done trying to figure this out, the most authoritative number they came up with concluded that fashion is responsible for 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Which doesn't sound too bad, but that makes it the third most climate-damaging industry on Earth after food at 25% and construction at 10%. It actually puts it ahead of cars, electronics, and the freight industry. And wouldn't you know it? Globally, less than 20% of this waste gets recycled. The rest ends up in landfills, incinerators, or in the environment. The Stockholm Resilience Center says that 85% of litter on beaches is textile waste. That isn't the end of it. About 20% of the world's industrial wastewater is created by treating and dyeing textiles. And textile production also dumps 190,000 tons of microplastic pollution into the oceans every year, which is about a third of the total. More microplastics still are generated by laundering and drying clothing, and when discarded items degrade. According to the UN, a total of half a million tons of textile-derived microplastics find their way into the seas every year. And of course, caring for clothes also consumes vast quantities of water, energy, and detergents. The punchline here is that unchecked, the fashion industry alone will produce a quarter of the carbon dioxide we can afford to emit by 2050 if we want to have a chance of staying below 2 degrees Celsius of warming. Anyway, if you're interested in this topic, and we hope you are, it turns out that there's, there's, uh, there's bad news everywhere you look. Cotton, you'd think, would be pretty environmentally sustainable, but cotton crop takes about 160 days to grow. It's sluiced with water and chemicals, after which the fiber is harvested and separated from the rest of the plant. It's noted that at this point, small amounts of the synthetic fiber elastine, also called spandex or lycra, may be added, 
which adds a pleasing stretchiness but can rebound when it comes to disposal as it makes the fabric very hard to recycle. According to a report by the environmental research group Mistra, production, consumption, and disposal of a single pair of jeans manufactured in Asia and bought in Sweden emitted the equivalent of 11.5 kilos of CO2, about the same as driving a car 60 kilometers. And that doesn't take into account the impact of laundering, which can be a main contributor to the CO2 footprint. And, according to the UN Alliance for Sustainable Fashion, the process also consumes about 7,500 liters of water, which is about what an average person drinks in seven years. Now, they note that we could get a 40% reduction in the industry's CO2 emissions if we could phase out uh, fossil fuels for generating electricity, but that, in fact, ignores the fact that many garment factories in Asia aren't hooked up to a national grid, but, in fact, use their own coal-powered generators. You should note that polyester is often um, cited as being sustainable by retailers, but, in fact, the vast majority of polyester is recycled from plastic bottles made of PET, a type of polyester, rather than clothing. It's not made from polyester garments because there's some technical problems existing for recycling that type of polyester. Now, theoretically, rayon and vicose, which is made from wood pulp, made of cellulose, uh, is theoretically better because they can be produced from renewable resources. But apparently, manufacturers are often criticized for using unsustainable wood and manufacturing processes. We can certainly all do something about this by, you know, keeping our clothes longer, uh, shopping at secondhand stores, taking the clothes that we no longer want to use and giving them to such stores. I mean, it's going to cost the fashion industry a lot of money, but it does appear something needs to be done. Well, I know how we can help. We can open up a series of Radio Parallax nudist colonies where people don't wear clothes (laughs) at all. No clothes, no washing. And yes, Mr. McMillan is suggesting that we open up a Radio Parallax-sponsored series of nudist colonies. Has potential, but we have to work on some of the details. And I know personally I'm not, I'm not terribly guilty of this. I, I buy something and wear it until wear it, it wears out. But I know people, or at least I've heard of people, who will take the sweaters that they no longer want to use and just dump them in the garbage. If you've done that, please stop. I also liked a question that came up in the Week magazine last year in their controversy of the week. It was about the supply chain shortages everybody would talk about till they're blue in the face. And the article posed the question, are we buying too much stuff? They noted at the time, at least commentator Lee Schaefer did in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, that the supply chain crises um, appears to have emptied store shelves across the U.S., but the root cause according to Mr. Schaefer, is simple. Too much demand. Yes, the global supply chain has become overwhelmed, partly because of an intricate interplay of COVID-related manufacturing shutdowns abroad, labor shortages at ports, and in trucking, shipping container flows, and a lot of other factors. But the primary driver of extended delays in delivery is that Americans have been buying stuff in huge historic quantities. Vox.com noted that the pandemic started this phenomenal buying spree when Americans found themselves locked down. They used the money they could no longer spend on restaurants, hair salons, or hotels to go online and use the simple touch of a button to order exercise equipment, lawn furniture, computers, appliances, TVs, gaming consoles, books, shoes, etc. 
All right, still looking for good news items. Uh, here's This is a good news item. Global satellites apparently will enable people to hunt down and stop illegal fishing vessels. New scientists noted last month that about 20% of the global seafood catch is harvested illegally. We might be able to clamp down on that due to an online map that uses satellite radar data can spot where boats are operating incognito. Commercial-sized vessels must have an automatic identification system, an AIS transponder, so they can be tracked. However, fishing boats can hide by simply turning off their AIS. Satellite-based radar can be used to find ships without their AIS turned on. Of course, the question remains, who's going to do the enforcing? And we're not, we're not clear on that one, but we hope someone does before we continue to wipe out fish stocks. And I was given a copy of the Nature Conservancy magazine by a neighbor, and thumbing through it, I, I noticed some further good news regarding the Hawaiian Islands. The piece notes that uh, various fish ponds that native Hawaiians used to supply food for themselves um, have sort of been let go in many parts of Hawaii, which has caused uh, algae to overgrow and sort of snuff out the corals that were present in these fish ponds. And native Hawaiians and environmental groups have decided to go back in and see if they can't clean things out, which they're doing. And as a bonus, they're rebuilding some of the taro patches that the natives used to uh, use to supply themselves with uh, both taro and poi. Eh, yeah, and I guess I couldn't resist inserting a little plug for Poi because, you know, I like the stuff. And I wish it would catch on, but there seems to be no evidence that that's likely anytime soon. And here's an item of bad news, probably related to climate change up in their sister state of Oregon. There seems to have been a, a surge of the Mormon cricket. Now, it turns out that the Mormon cricket is not actually a cricket or grasshopper, but is, in fact, a katydid, which is a closely related type of animal. There's been some outbreaks up in Oregon, and unfortunately, authorities are responding in the usual boneheaded way by spraying poisons on the landscape, large swaths of the landscape. As we pointed out in this program in the past, insects are highly edible. If we treated this uh, outbreak of Mormon crickets as a crop, well, a lot of folks could be fed. But again, this is something that's probably not likely to happen anytime real soon. Here's another item from New Scientist magazine that kind of parallels their take on, um, you know, being kinder with uh, fashions, kinder to the environment via fashions. We could also be kinder to the environment if we stop buying so many big old SUVs. Commentary by Andrew Simmons in the magazine notes that um, why is it in a warming world we're surrounded by ads encouraging us to buy polluting high-carbon products? Ads promoting high-carbon lifestyles and products are ubiquitous. Car firms spend an estimated $35 billion on advertising in major global markets. That was in 2018. SUVs were the second largest contributor to the increase in global carbon dioxide emissions between 2010 and 2018. I assume they mean by that among vehicles. This followed heavy promotion by vehicle manufacturers. In less than a decade, SUVs went from being 1 in 10 new car sales to more than 4 in 10. Stop it, people. Most of you don't need an SUV. The piece notes that to a large degree, the advertising of high-carbon products has taken the place of the once-common tobacco advertising. Anyway, in the environmental slash, well, more properly medical front, we have some startlingly good news. It now seems pretty clear that precision medicine, 
or in this case, personalized vaccines, are getting fantastic results in the treating of cancers. New Scientist notes that even some infamously hard-to-treat cancers, such as those of the brain and pancreas, have been eliminated in some cases using personalized vaccines. One of the main benefits in this approach is that it causes almost no side effects because of its precise targeting of the tumors. Noted New Scientist, of course, making unique vaccines for each person is costly and time-consuming, but if this continues to have spectacular results, there'll be a strong appetite to drive down costs and manufacturing time. At any rate, you can custom make a vaccine or vaccination that will increase the number of your T-cells that's aimed at the tumors. And checkpoint inhibitors, a new class of drugs that has come out in fairly recently, boosts the anti-tumor activity of those T-cells. Peace notes that if your T-cells can be thought of as an army, the checkpoint inhibitors makes the soldiers stronger, and vaccination recruits extra soldiers combination of these strategies is proving extremely powerful. And frankly, that's damn good news. All right, another medical item that we first thought was great news, but may not be as good as we thought, we have this. The Supreme Court, oh, them again, ruled last week, four doctors who face criminal charges for overprescribing powerful pain medications. This is a case arising from the so-called opioid addiction crisis. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote for the court that prosecutors must prove that doctors knew they were illegally prescribing powerful pain drugs in violation of the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Since we've been very critical on this program of the anti-opioid mania currently sweeping the country, we thought at first this was good news. But on further inspection, we find that the doctors, Siulu Ruan of Mobile, Alabama, and Shaquille Khan, of Fort Mojave, Arizona, well, they, they, they wrote an awful lot of these prescriptions. In fact, they evidently grossed $20 million between 2012 and a raid in 2015. In 2014, they wrote 66,000 prescriptions, according to prosecutors. Now, I did the math on that. That works out to something like 260 prescriptions per workday. I think my personal record for seeing patients in a day was uh, 118. So I think we're going to have to ask our good friend, Dr. Roger Orman, who himself does run a pain clinic, to, to weigh in on this, on this issue. Expect to speak to Roger soon. All right, let's close with two obituaries. The first one is for Barry Sussman. He was the city editor at the Washington Post on the morning of June 17, 1972, when the word came in of a break-in at Democratic National Headquarters. It was Sussman who sent Bob Woodward, a young reporter he'd mentored, to look into it. And of course, that saga of political corruption and cover-up that unspooled, culminating in Richard Nixon's resignation, would make Woodward and fellow reporter Carl Bernstein household names. But Sussman might be properly viewed as the unsung hero of the post-Pulitzer Prize. He was described as gentle and scholarly by Woodward and Bernstein in their book, All the President's Men. Sussman had a relentless curiosity and unnatural ability to recall every tiny detail as the trio labored to piece the story together. Keep in mind, the trio. In Sussman's mind, everything fitted, they wrote. Watergate was a puzzle and he was a collector of pieces. As Watergate unfolded, Woodward Bernstein found in Sussman an editor attuned to and fascinated by the ongoing story of political intrigue, according to the New York Times. The pair called him Socratic for his ability to ask just the right question to push the reporting forward. But The Atlantic noted that Woodward Bernstein found fame, 
but at Sussman's expense. The pair's book was initially conceived as a three-man effort, but the reporters decided to cut Sussman out. The insult destroyed his close friendship with Bob Woodward. And then in 1976, when they made the movie All the President's Men, Sussman was written out entirely out of concern that showing multiple editors would confuse viewers. Barry Sussman went on to become a pollster and ran Harvard's Neiman Watchdog Project, which encouraged aggressive questioning of the powerful. Anyway, as I said before, we're, we're not Bob Woodward fans here, although he does do some good work. And finally, we note with sadness the passing of James Rado. He co-created Hare and died last week at the age of 90. Now Hare, in case you were unaware, has the story and lyrics from Rado and his partner Jerome Ragney and the music by Galt McDermott. It was the first rock musical on Broadway and the first Broadway show to feature full nudity. Hare made possible other rock musicals like Jesus Christ Superstar and Rent. It was one of only a handful of Broadway shows in the past few decades to find its songs on the pop charts. The so-called American Tribal Love Rock musical had a world premiere at the Public Theater in New York's East Village in 1967 and transferred the following year to Broadway, where it ran more than 1,800 performances. Rado played Claude, a young man about to be drafted and sent to the war in Vietnam initially. The Hair Broadway cast album spawned four top 40 singles on the American pop charts, including the number one hit Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine In by The Fifth Dimension, which won them a Grammy. Others included Hair by The Cow Sills, Good Morning Starshine by the singer Oliver, and Easy to Be Hard by Three Dog Night. The cast album itself stayed number one on the Billboard 200 for 13 weeks. The songs from Hair have been used in everything from the films Forrest Gump, Minions, and 40-Year-Old Virgin to TV shows like Glee, So You Think You Can Dance, and My Name is Earl. Billboard magazine lists Aquarius Let the Sunshine In as number 66 of all time top 100 songs. James Rado was born in Venice, California, raised in Rochester, New York, which must have been quite a change. After serving two years in the U.S. Navy, he moved to New York and studied acting with Paula and Lee Strasberg. Rita was part of the ensemble of the Broadway play Marathon 33 in 1963, and in 1966 he played Richard Lionhearted in The Lion and Winter opposite Christopher Walken. He met Ragney when he was cast in the off-Broadway musical Hang Down Your Head and Die. The two were interested in birthing a new kind of show and focused on the hippie scene. They wrote the script while sharing an apartment in Hoboken, New York. Hare met resistance across the country in addition to the use of four-letter words, the flouting of authority, sexual references, and gross-out humor. The end of Act One had the entire cast stripped naked. Anyway, this correspondent saw Hare back in, in the day, back in the 60s, and saw it again in a revival a few years ago, and I can tell you that I enjoyed it both times. A lot of actors made a splash on the stage productions of Hare. These include Diane Keaton, Joe Mantegna, Meatloaf, Keith Carradine, Donna Summer, Tim Curry, and Elaine Page. I think of no better way to end this program than with my favorite musical selection from Hare, which will shortly be cued up by Mr. Edward McMillan, who is the producer of this program and, and all of them. He does want to note for the record that he does not particularly like musicals, and he particularly does not like appearing nude on stage. Aww. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you soon. Yeah.